Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and I will, you will make it known to me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Tamanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Tamanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comfort him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima. And the name of the second daughter, second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapik. And in all the land, there was no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons for generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, as we close out this book, I pray that the truth of this will stick with us this coming week and month and year. Lord, help us to turn to this and see the greater redemptive story that you're working out, not just in our lives, but in the scripture as we look to your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning I want to begin with a familiar tune to you, and I will just try and keep it rather brief. Um, you'll, you'll recognize it right off. So it goes, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Joey. Happy birthday. Now, why did you finish that? Why did you just do that? Why did you finish the tune? Was there something in you that said, I, I can't rest. I don't, I don't feel resolve unless I add the to you. Why is it that you wouldn't let it just hang there with me just saying happy birthday done? I I think there is something in all of us that longs for a resolve. There's something in us that, that craves crossing over that finish line. Even so much that when some weird guy just sings for no apparent good reason, happy birthday, you have to conclude with to you. We, we, we love resolve. Um, when Judy 
plays up here on a Sunday morning, she has to end on the main chord of the song. Or it's like fingernails on the chalkboard to us, isn't it? We love it when a story concludes with, and they lived happily ever after. We love it when dessert comes after the main meal. God has wired us this way. God has wired you to long for resolve. And if that's true, why is it that your life doesn't resolve? If this is true, how come there is inside you a sense of tension, of hanging and waiting? Why is it sometimes in your life it feels like somebody's trying to sing your happy birthday song, but they just say happy birthday and never say to you? And you are here, you're sitting like, come on, finish it already. Finish it, complete it. And yet part of the reason for the book of Job is to reveal to us that the trial of life for the Christian Stick with me here for a minute. That this grand sweeping conclusion, if it came back in chapter 3, in other words, if Job chapter 42 was back in Job chapter 3, that this would be a boring book, that it would be unrealistic, maybe even lame, we might say. But the fact that you and I have sat with Job and his friends in this agony, in this trial for months, literally, and in the story, months, literally, and the fact that this, the end of the story didn't come in the middle, but, but it comes at the end because we long for resolve. We don't want a pat answer. We don't want sugarcoating. We don't want pie in the sky. But we want a resolve that leaves us changed. And, and truly, we want a resolve that not only leaves us changed, but you and I, we want something that leaves us better than when we began. And friends, that's exactly what we get with the book of Job. And we'll see this as we unfold this morning. Repentance, rebuke, and restoration. So repentance, verses 1 through 6. Rebuke, 7 through 9. And restoration come 10 through 17. So first, repentance, verses 1 through 6. Now, Job repents here in these verses. But before we look at that in detail, I want to recall how we've come to this moment for those of you who haven't been with us this entire time or have, were here at the beginning and didn't catch some of the middle. Recall how this whole thing began. That Job began with riches and respect. He was the greatest man in the East and he went from riches and respect to rags and ruin. In Job chapter one, it showed us a man who was not just great, but good. He was a wealthy man with a great number of livestock and servants, and he was honorable, upright, faithful. He was blameless, and he turned away from evil. He was concerned not only for his own walk of faith, this is what was incredible, but we saw he was concerned for others around him, including his children. So he sacrificed, as a priest would, prior to the time of the priesthood, for his own children. And we learned that the Satan, the accuser, met with God and there was this agreement. Not only that the accuser could take away Job's livestock, we saw that, his servants, his children, and eventually his very health. And the whole crux of the matter was this, will Job curse God? But amazingly, we saw Job will not curse God. He will maintain that God is good. Even if he's very confused as to why all of this is happening, it is clear that Job is not suffering due to sin, Quite the opposite, friends. Job is suffering because he is a righteous man. He's suffering because he's upright. This is why the accuser has come to accuse him. And then for some 30 chapters, 
we hear responses from three of Job's friends who should have comforted him, but rather than bring him comfort, these three friends show up and just accuse him. Uh, Job, admittedly, he, de- he, he wants to defend his life, making it clear he had not done some great wicked deed that would necessitate losing everything. And finally, after all this building and mounting tension, we finally get to Job chapter 38, where the Lord speaks and breaks in and answers Job from the whirlwind. Job cries out for vindication, seeking answer, and the Lord begins to answer Job with questions, to which I argued a couple weeks back that if Job could answer these questions that the Lord asked him, he would answer, begin at least at some level to answer his own question as far as why and gain understanding. Even if he wasn't able to see the first chapter of Job, Job would gain an understanding by realizing that God created everything, and this included up to the accuser, Satan. That if Job could recognize this whole world was his plan, the creation, the trees, the plants, the animals, and all the beasts of the field and everything out there, and up into including this accuser and death itself, well, these things all serve God's purposes. And this is what brings Job to this moment that we're at here, chapter 42, verse 2, where Job says here, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Do you see what Job is essentially saying here? He's not saying, Lord, I know you can do all things. I've been asking for a Ferrari. Would you just bring one on? That's not the point. He's, he's responding to what God has, has been questioning him. Where were you when I created all this? When I, when I, this whole thing was my plan. And even when God says, can you stop these beasts, the Leviathan, the behemoth, which I argued were representative of death and Satan, can you stop these things? Can you take them down? And, and I think Job here is responding saying, Lord, I can't. You created these things. Therefore, you are the only one who can do this. You can do all things. And I know you can leash them. You can control them. Job here is not repenting, saying, all right, God, you got me. I did some great wicked sin. That's not the point. He's repenting, saying, I spoke not realizing what I was saying. At verse 3, he's quoting God, and admittedly, the translation here is a bit difficult, um, and this is why you, you'll notice several of the translations have a, a difficulty in trying to piece out how, how to phrase this. But, but essentially here, he's quoting God, and, and if this was a 21st century um, way of phrasing it, we might say it like this. Job, Job says, all right, Lord, you asked me who it was who enters your council into your heavenly places and darkens it. In other words, who is it who's come up to heaven where God is and God is light, but somebody's entered this throne room of God and is making the place of light darker. And Job is essentially saying, you want to know who stepped in and made it darker? Well, it's me. I'm Job. Here I am. It was me. And, and then if we could restate verses three through six in a amplified way, we might put it that Job is saying, now I thought I understood everything. I, I, I thought I, I, I had this world figured out. I thought the retributive principle might be right. I thought that this instant sort of karma, this tit for tat was the right way. That if I do right, I will be rewarded right here, right now. And yet my life has been in tragedy and trial. And I couldn't make sense of this. I was wondering why I'm receiving this punishment, but I heard you now, Lord. Not only has my ear heard you, my eye has seen you. This was all your plan. 
the creation, the pain, the suffering, all of this serves your purpose. So I repent in dust and ashes, or the way we might put it would say, all right, Lord, I'm putting on black like I'm going to a funeral, and I got a box of Kleenex under my arms because I'm here repenting in dust and ashes. And friends, if this book ended right here at this moment, I think it would be fair enough. If, if it just ended here at verse 6, I think we would say, okay, um, it's an okay uh, book. But, but I don't think it would be a great story. I, I think if, if we just ended here with Job saying, God, you created the world. This is all your plan. I figured that out. I'm humbled. End of story. It'd be okay. But it wouldn't be great. It, it would be like the birthday song, happy birthday, but no to you. And, and so what makes this story really great is what comes next. And so we begin to unpack that and unfold it here as we see the rebuke. And so we look at the rebuke here with verses 7 through 9, and I'm going to read these again to bring them to mind. And after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Tamanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore... Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pay, uh, pray for you and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Tamanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. In this response from God, it's noteworthy that nowhere does God say, my anger burns against you, Job. He's not angry with Job. He may speak, you know, a bit strongly to Job. He may say, Job, put on your dress like a man, prepare yourself, let's go. Where were you? But he's not angry with Job. No, his anger is with the three friends, the three amigos, with Eliphaz and, and Bildad and Zophar. And, and could you imagine the, these three, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? They're thinking, aha, finally the Lord has shown up. Aha, finally the Lord will make it very clear that we were in the right and Job was in the wrong, that he is suffering in sin because of his sin. He is suffering. And, and, and at this moment, you could picture that when the Lord says, no, 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 my anger burns against you three, you could picture they're, they're extremely humbled in this moment. And when the Lord calls Job his servant, the way we hear that, uh, you haven't spoken rightly about me as my servant Job has. Now, the way we hear this, we think of, you know, just some sort of handyman who's, who's there to kind of be low on the totem pole to God. But understand this servant language is important biblical language. And it's the kind of language that a a president or a a five-star general might speak of their personal secretary, their their right-hand man. So this, when he says, my servant, the one who is actively right close with me, fulfilling my very purposes. So you get the gist that when he tells the three friends, my anger burns against you because my servant, the one who I'm close with, my right-hand man has spoken right and you have not. And, and so you get the gist here that this brings them to a place of humility. And can't you see how patiently Job 
had endured all these months in agony and ridicule and taunting, and he didn't sin by attacking his three friends um, or speaking evil of his three friends. Very patiently to finally have this moment where he is vindicated before their eyes. And amazingly, friends, this whole scene uh, here in Job, uh, Job 42, I think, is alluded to in James chapter 5. The only place that the New Testament speaks of Job is directly is James chapter 5. And so just listen to some of the correlation here and see if this matches in your mind. James, where James, the, the brother of Jesus, he's speaking to the Christian church. So he's speaking to Christians like us. And he says this, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, what was Job waiting for this whole time? What is he crying out for? Vindication from God. He's waiting for the Lord to show up. And so James says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the waiting, waiting for the coming of the Lord. Then he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then listen to this. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And what was it that the three friends were doing this entire time is grumbling against Job, judging him. And then Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Then here's where James mentions Job. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so in James' mind, as he's thinking about patience and peace between the brothers and and waiting for the coming of the Lord, he's thinking of Job. And then a few verses later, James says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Friends, the book of James is showing us what was worked out here in Job 42. Job, a righteous man and a patient man was waiting for the coming of the Lord. And when he was instructed, he prays for his friends. And the Lord overlooks their foolish talk and forgives their sin. And in essence, we might say they're healed. And so church, what is true for Job's friends and for the recipients of the book of James is true for you this morning. Um, That you and I would, in patience, be waiting, that we would call each other to confess, waiting patiently for the coming of the Lord, not grumbling, but rather praying in righteousness for the healing. And then, friends, what comes for Job's friends are they, they're healed. They are healed. It's a great scene. Uh, Job cares for his children as a priest and sacrifices for their sin. And amazingly, uh, He's now caring even for those who've come to speak wickedly about him and prays for their healing. But in this moment, at the end of verse 9, remember where Job sits. Just because the Lord has spoken, just because the Lord has brought some understanding, doesn't mean that Job is all of a sudden fixed and repaired. He's still sitting in ashes. He's still sitting with scraped flesh and scabs and open wounds and pain. With great loss. None of this has been vindicated. And so the question is, will there be restoration for Job? Surely there will be. Look at verse 10. 
verse 10, where we read that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. And when he had prayed for his friends, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. What had happened to Job is a picture, friends, of how God treats his friends. A a bruised reed he will not break, Matthew 12. If you're weak and bruised, he will not bring you to final ruin. No, he will restore the years that the locusts have eaten, Joel chapter 2, verse 25. He will wipe away every tear, Revelation 21. He left earth to prepare a place for you in heaven, John chapter 14. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants, Psalm 135. And in the end, vindication will be for you and I, even as it was for Jesus himself. So how does this work out in practice for Job? We'll look at verse 11. Look at verse 11 where we read, And then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy. And they comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. And so what we see now is the undoing, because not only had Job lost his health and his children, but he had lost dignity and respect and relationships. Recall that he had kind of lost all these things. And here, the picture is, not only was he despised by family, friends, and his wife, but now this is beginning to be undone. So that they are there to eat with him. Remember, eating with somebody is this emotional connection. It was to say that you are on par with somebody if you had shared a meal with them. In some ways, it's this way for us. But not only do we see relationships being restored, but verse 12 And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. Now question, how many sheep did Job have in chapter 1? 7,000. And now how many sheep does he have? 14,000. Double. For the camels, for the oxen, for the donkeys, all the exact same thing. It's double, double. Double, double. And, and double what he began with. Even his children, friends, are perfectly replaced. So that he has the exact same number of boys and girls. And yet, it's not without improvement. Because we see here that the daughters, the three daughters that he has, are beauty queens. Jemima's name means a dove. Keziah means a type of perfume, and Karen Happick would be like if we named one of our daughters Maybelline, you know, a makeup company. In other words, these three daughters radiate with beauty, which is a blessing to Job. It's a reflection of Job. And typically, women in their era, you know that they didn't receive an inheritance. You know that they didn't receive funds. It wasn't evenly divided by, by, for, for the children that it was only the male offspring. But here, the picture is Job's wealth abounds so much. Why not give these beautiful daughters of his an inheritance too? And friends, not only all of this, but Job doesn't just live to a good old age of 70 or 80 or 90. But to live to a good age of 70 was good. But here, He's going to live to double that. He lives to 140. Now, we would picture, well, if he's going to live to 140, it must have been a miserable last 70 years of his life. That's not the picture. Look at verse 16 and 17 with me. 
After this, Job lived 140 years and he saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. Catch this, verse 17. And Job died an old man full of days. What a wonderful line, full of days. That's my prayer for you, Christians. That you live full of days. It's a, it's a way of saying that Job, in his last half of his life, he lived the good life. The good life that God wanted to, to have with him. Job's latter days are better than his former days. And if you are with us here and you have yet to trust in the God of Job, then isn't there a part of you that wishes this to be true? At least part of you that says, I wish this was the case. Even if you say, I don't believe this book, I don't believe the Bible. Doesn't part of you just wish that this was reality? That for those who suffer, it doesn't end in complete darkness? Or tragedy, but that there is a restoration, a resolve, a joyful ending. Don't you just at least want that to be the case? That grace is given to those who don't deserve it? That God redeems us back from the dead? That God's wrath would be absorbed in the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf? That you would have peace this very morning with God? That your latter days of your life would be on the other side, even if it's with him in heaven, would be greater than the days here? Better than this life. If that's you this morning, I would love to talk with you about this. It's a joy for me to talk about the book of Job. It's an even greater joy for me to talk with you about Jesus and the gospel. Well, this story, it seems to sort of conclude with, and they lived happily ever after. This is kind of like the birthday song, but it ends with the to you, doesn't it? And that to you at the very end here, is really loud and it's really bold, which can leave you and I a bit frustrated. You and I, we can see here this morning and say, well, this is great for Job, but where's my double? I have one car, I'm looking for two. You know, I've got four daughters, but I want four beautiful, no, I'm just, I have four beautiful daughters. (laughs) But, But it can leave you saying, where's my double? Well, recall, friends, what I opened up with this morning. The end is not until the end. And so maybe you and I, we're back in chapter 6 of Job. Do you remember what he said back in chapter 6? Maybe you and I, in the story, we're back there. Where Job says, Oh, that I might have my request, that God would fulfill my hope. That it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. In other words, that's where Job says, God, if you would just take me out right now and do away with me, that's my one request. Would you just do that? Maybe that's where you're at in this story. But I want you to hear this morning that even if that's where you and I can be at times, that I pray in faith you'll make it to chapter 19, where Job said this brilliant line, probably more than he realized he was saying, where he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. And that while this morning you may be fighting to understand why it is you and I can suffer, that you would echo in your trial, that you would say with me, from where then does my wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? God understands the way to it. He knows its place. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that is understanding. Job Chapter 28. And that ultimately, you and I as Christians, 
that we would rest on the clarity of the New Testament picture of the suffering saint. 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, one of the things we want out of a book like Job is we want an answer to the question of why. Why does God allow suffering, especially for his people? Why doesn't God just simply fix and end suffering? But the full reality is for the believer is God doesn't just try to fix our suffering. No, rather he joins us in our suffering. Friends, in Christ coming, he took on our suffering. God is not the deist God who looks away from our suffering. Rather, he's the one who comes to earth to, to, to join us in it so that we can say that not even God himself escapes suffering. So that even God himself feels pain, grief, and heartache. And if there ever was a beautiful picture of Job, it's what the entire Bible bends around as it points us to Jesus Christ himself. So I want to introduce you this morning to the true and better Job, to Jesus Christ. I want to introduce you to the truly blameless one. And not just blameless like Job was, but sinless unlike Job was. Jesus Christ, the most complete man who ever walked. Ask yourself this morning, was if, if there was a blameless, sinless man in the New Testament that Satan couldn't wait to take out, was there a man that Satan could not wait to attack? Ask yourself, was there a man in the New Testament who was a man of constant sorrows? A man who was grieved with the weight of humanity's sin? Ask yourself if you know a man who undeservedly received punishment and yet his face was still set towards the cross. That he continued in prayer and worship of his heavenly father through it all. And ask yourself if you recognize this man, a servant of God, who not only longed for a redeemer, but was the redeemer. So when the people said, show us the father, he says, I and the father are one. You're looking at the father A good man, but far more a great man, who in his righteousness prayed for men and women. And when this man prayed, they were healed. And in his suffering, too, was the loss of everything like Job and then some. For not only did he lose comfort and pride and status, but eventually he lost the loved ones. He carried the cross alone. And he was treated poorly, even as Job was, skin for skin. Suffering not just in anguish or in physical pain like Job, but far more because Christ was bearing the heaviness and the weight of sin. And much like Job in the New Testament tells us that this all too was for the glory of God. That Jesus, like Job, a high priest, who stands in the gap for his children, he is the sacrifice that covers your sin this morning. He is what makes you and I right with our Heavenly Father right now. Yet even as with Job, so too, the cross is not the end of the story. Christ's resurrection and ascension, they're the beginning, the beginning of the end. And the latter years of Christ are greater than the former years. Don't you see that what the closing of this book highlights? It's not just restoration. It's that the restoration is greater than the beginning. Do you see that Job, he's in a greater position now. 
for having gone through all of this. And Jesus, through the cross, he is greater too. Philippians speaks this way. Philippians chapter 2, where we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. There's the language from Job. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, here's the turn, and therefore, he has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, can you see the movement? The movement is this. Just like with Joseph, the man of coat of many colors, and he goes to the pit. But then he rises to the palace to be the ruler of it all so that he is the redeemer of all of his people. So to Job, a great man, goes to the pit, but then receives double and double the honor. And so too with Christ, the way we see this pictured as he, in agreement with the, with the triune Godhead, leaves and humbles himself to be born amongst men in sin. But then as he exalts He is exalted above every other name so that he takes the highest position of all. And so, too, it is in a sense for us as Christians, true for us, if you are connected with Christ, you may begin at a certain position and and you may have to come to a point where you're at the bottom of the barrel, where you cry out, God, I have nothing left except you. And you'll have to humble yourself and you'll have to say, I can't hope in any other God of this world but Christ alone. And when you're in that place, God will lift you up so that you are seated with, even now, that our redemption is had. It's the, the key is in our hand. And someday, yes, we'll see him face to face too like Job. And we will be fully vindicated in Christ. The big question that this book has been asking is, how does God treat his faithful servants? Friends, God with all wisdom and understanding He vindicates his suffering servants. The book of Job is not about why we suffer, how to fix our suffering. Rather, this is a book to help us fix our eyes on a good God who will one day vindicate all the suffering that you and I have been through. We open this this highlighting our longing for a conclusion. We want the end to come. And here in Job and in the gospel, we have a wonderful, wonderful conclusion vindication for Christ and vindication for those who trust in Christ. This morning, I'd like to close um, this out with a quote. It's a quote from a great scholar and a great theologian, Princess Leia. And listen to how fitting this is where she says this. She says, hope is like the sun. If you only believe it when you see it, you'll never make it through the night. Hope is like the sun. If you only believe it when you see it, you'll never make it through the night. And this wonderful little line maintains the reality for you and I, when we're in the nighttime, we can pull this book out, all of scripture, and yes, even Job, and remind ourselves of the vindication that is coming as we fix our eyes on the coming sun who will vindicate us even as he's been vindicated. Would you pray with me? Father, some of us, 
we are like Job on the ash heap. We are out at the town dump in our black clothes mourning, wondering why it is that we suffer. But I pray that this book, the truth of the gospel, will warm our hearts. Lord, that it would carry us through the night so that your son, Christ, would shine and radiate. Lord, we want to come into your counsel, not to darken it with misunderstanding, but with clarity to bring you glory, to make you great, to worship you in the night. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.